0: Well, thank you for joining me today on Financially Speaking. My name is Mitch Slater. I'm a Senior Vice President and Financial Advisor with UBS Wealth Management in Westfield, New Jersey. Where along with my partners, Anne and Crystal, we do our best to bring you advice beyond investing and address our clients' most challenging financial needs. It's my sincere hope that each and every episode of this podcast will educate you on personal finance and real-life business issues of the day. So let's jump right in. Well, today we're coming to you from high atop the Empire State Building, still one of the world's great wonders and home of King Kong and the final scene of When Harry Met Sally. But today, I'm here at the New York City offices of LinkedIn. Well, I have news for you. LinkedIn is not just a job board anymore. And despite the fact that the Queen of England, I kid you not, is currently moonlighting as a LinkedIn recruiter as Buckingham Palace recently used their page to search for a personal assistant for the royal family, and Her Majesty, at 93, also has gone to LinkedIn in search of a social media manager to help grow, and I quote, a delightful presence on Instagram. But sorry to say, when you listen to this podcast, the application period has ended. The job has been filled. We have checked. Personally, I think our guest today would have made a great addition to the royal family, as Brian teige is truly royalty around the halls and pages of LinkedIn for over 12 years, which is kind of a lifetime here, as he was their first remote salesperson covering the East Coast, has worn many hats since then, and now is the global client director since being acquired by Microsoft, leading a team of global professionals to highlight all of LinkedIn, broad portfolios of products and services. Full disclosure, I've known Brian for about a decade. We've done events together with the likes of Gary Vaynerchuk, and I've called on Brian to help teach LinkedIn to a number of professionals in my own network. Welcome to Financially Speaking, Brian. Thanks for having me, Mitch. That's a pleasure. So we'd like to start our show each week going down the yellow brick road of people's journeys. And I would love our audience to hear about your childhood and earlier parts of your career that kind of led you to this home of 645 million or so users posting 2 million times a day.
1: Wow. Uh, (laughs) I was a loner as a child. I uh, was an only child for many years early on, so... uh, Became very creative in my imagination, in uh, fantasy friends, in other ways that uh, young people keep themselves occupied. Didn't have any screen time back then. And so... I think that wanting to connect with people has always influenced my passion for wanting to help others and engaging people, maybe that they're a little lost or they're they're on some different journey. And so, you know, as I progressed as a professional and missed out on the first internet, boom, I was a day late and a dollar short to a startup. Like many others, I showed up the next day. I think everything deflated. Could have been e-toys. it There were <laughs> a lot of things it could have been. So <laughs> yeah. let's be fair. <laughs> yeah. No, it was, uh, we did time shifted audio. Uh, okay. So basically podcasting before iPods existed. Wow. And uh, we were also building a semantic search engine for financial advisors so that it wasn't about the information you're looking at but the inferred knowledge based on uh, data domains. So very cutting edge stuff 20 years ago and uh, way ahead of its time. And so obviously the financial crisis, uh, September 11th hit right. that evaporated but it was one of my coworkers at my last job. He's in engineering, I was a sales engineer And uh, he said, yeah, I'm leaving. And I was shocked. I'm like, why? We've been working together for five years. We've got a great working relationship. And he goes, Brian, I got this great opportunity at this little company called LinkedIn. So I pulled him out in the hallway. And this was 2006. And I said, hey, LinkedIn, I love the platform because it was an online Rolodex at the time. And it was actually my best lead gen tool back then. So we talk about generating sales and building personal brand. How many users were there when you first got here? When I first joined, I was like 1.1 million member to join. And we had approximately 6 million members globally when I became an employee in March, 2007. Okay. So some exponential change there. And earlier this week when Microsoft released their earnings, they announced our latest, latest public numbers, which is 660 million. Wow. And so 13 years from 6 million to 660 million, and you think about the context of which LinkedIn operates, which is professionalism and workplace, to think about that we've got upwards of 10% of the world's population on the platform is uh, pretty impactful. And it's not about, hey, what the current meme is, or it's a diversion, it's- People no, we'll, trying to get things done. We'll get done. to that specifically. So when you first arrived
0: at LinkedIn, did, did you have any clue this kind of small startup would not only become the largest maybe HR department on the planet, but turned into a very social work appropriate
1: network? I had no idea it would grow to the the, the size and scale that it has as quickly as it did. Honestly, the, the team, when we were together, uh, we were competing for budget dollars with the likes of monster.com in the job board space. Dice, CareerBuilder, and other smaller job boards. And we would literally huddle in a small room and say, when we hit 10 million members, we are gonna be crushing it. But you have to think back what scale meant 15 years ago, 10 years ago. If you wanted to reach a million members or a million people, Mm -hmm. and you wanna go in the Wall Street Journal, let's say, the New York Times, you'd spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on a single page ad to potentially reach an audience. Those kind of numbers, right? You think about what Facebook and Insta Mm -hmm. and Snapchat and these platforms have done is it really transformed the ability for the common person to reach a scale that they could never have afforded 10 years ago. The amount of publicity and advertisement and proportionate fame that they can develop on their own basically for free for sweat equity. Is really transformed the entire entrepreneur opportunity for everyone globally. That's true. Right. I mean, in that literally, we could not afford to get the eyeballs 10 years ago, the average person. There's no way.
0: No. So one of the things I know about you, Brian, is you're a really good storyteller. And I think it'd be fun to hear your take and maybe some specific stories on why so many corporations over the world began turning to LinkedIn so early to post their jobs.
1: Well, in Silicon Valley in particular, right? They're always looking for an edge. And uh, talent, there's always been a war for talent out there. And so a lot of the technology companies, when you're in the know, you want to try out new platforms. And, you know, that's an innovation hub. And the technology companies, because they have to compete for talent, I think are more apt to challenge themselves and look for new opportunities or automation. And that slowly trickles to other areas of the economy, different industries. If you look at more compliance-ridden or uh, industries like financial services or pharmaceuticals and stuff, they're going to be more laggards because they're more risk-averse, right? Because they have other regulations that they have to conform with. And so the natural curve is technology, consumer, retail, et cetera. And then it'll get into farm and financial services more towards the end. When it comes to, I think, consumer-facing or where the brand could be the reputational hazard, I think, way more cautious there. And a lot more challenging, I guess, 12, 14 years ago to
0: convince companies, large corporations, Fortune 500 corporations to, to even take a look at this kind of kid.
1: Um, without naming names in, in financial services, I was here based in New York. So obviously, financial services was a big focus for me. Most of the big names back then, I had to go through a six to 12 month review process to even get LinkedIn on the networks. They were just totally, we were just totally excluded. So anyone from any of the banks uh, were all accessing it either at home or on their phone, right. et cetera. And obviously- no, I can
0: certainly vouch for that. My industry has been very late to the party in general. I mean, we're not the only ones I know, from, no. but, but certainly maybe it took them a little bit of time to, to realize what the potential is here. So we talked about earlier that LinkedIn's not just a job board. It's transformed so much as a platform. In fact, it's- Really, the best place that I know to develop, maintain a professional brand. What's the evolution of that? And what brands early on figured that out?
1: Oh, I think early on, leading consumer goods organizations like uh, P&G, right. I think did an exceptional job early on. They understood brands. They understood brands. Right. Uh, even, you know, even in times of challenge, right? You look at organizations like British Petroleum right? They had the platform disaster in the Gulf, right. and they leveraged social media to kind of turn around public perception. Uh, it had to get the, the right information out there. There was a negative, obviously. Had environmental impact. People got hurt. I mean, you know, not anything you want to wake up to on the cover of the Wall Street Journal that your organization's involved in, right? And uh, they went to work and uh, started redeveloping their brand, and they used LinkedIn as one of the, their primary channels, right? Because of the people right. that they wanted to reach.
0: I've been so amazed how many people are on LinkedIn saying they're LinkedIn experts. Give me money and I will tell you how to, to, to get your brand out on LinkedIn. But for someone who's actually been doing it for 12 or 13 years, I thought it would be really helpful for the audience if maybe you could list a few keys to building your personal brand on LinkedIn. You know, what, what would they be? What would be some of the five or six keys to really getting your brand out there?
1: First and foremost, what I will say is even 12 to 13 years as an employee I don't even brand myself as an expert because it's ever changing. And uh, to really be an expert, you want to have a certain level of predictability. And I believe that as we introduce new algorithms, new features, new new, uh, functions, it takes time to reacclimate yourself and see what the impact is. For the average person who's really setting up a new baseline, one, have a great photograph. I think that the difference between someone having a photograph and not having a photograph is a 16x difference you don't exist if i don't see your photograph i i'm immediately doubting but let's let's make sure we think about both sides you know there are people that may have an idea that they may be discriminated against based on a whole host of factors that is true and um one of the rebuttals to that is i said well if someone's going to discriminate based on what you look like is that really the organization you want to be with anyway (laughs) <laughs> right? I mean, I, I think we should all be judged on our merits, not what we look or, right. you know, et cetera. So I mean, that but I'd want to make sure that we balance that argument because I could see and a some professional
0: people. looking photograph. I mean, you and I have over the years, I've sent pictures back and forth to Brian <laughs> when I when I see some really, really interesting folks. And, and you know, people are welcome to wear whatever they want. But there is appropriateness. And then there's inappropriateness. And, and we've seen
1: plenty of that. I mean, but how do you how do you consult people with that? Business casual, generally speaking. Don't have that picture where your former partner cut out of it right. from a wedding or yeah. other things. I say nothing inspires trust like a set of sunglasses. Right. So if in you're in you're on, a bathing suit. In a which, bathing which suit. we've or, seen. Or, you know, if right. you're on vacation right. and you're wearing sunglasses, right. unless you sell sunglasses for a living or you're in the vacation industry, probably not the best photograph to be used.
0: A photo should represent who you are and what your brand you know what your brand is
1: and so some of the things right. that we may say are not appropriate may be appropriate depending on your industry
0: this is true. and I have seen that with with people that are in the modeling industry and I've seen that in a number of other industries that you know I've seen really great, great photos. Um, let's talk about profile headline because that's becoming more and more important
1: so that's number two right photographs number one, your headline is number two. That's what we call above the the line right. that's the photo, the headline, and the summary are the top three things they're going to decide if anyone's going to go further. And so make sure that your headline is not your job title because that's repeated. So in a search, you're going to get called up regardless because it's somewhere down further. Use that as an opportunity to catch someone's attention. That's your first part of your billboard. When you see that, that new iPhone ad, they don't go into the spec sheet. Right. There's one or two words on there to make you get captivated and focus in on that billboard. That's what it's for. So make sure that it aligns with your passion, something you're an expert at, or something that really separates you from the others that do what you do. So avoid any cliches, I would imagine. (laughs) Yes, and buzzword bingo. Right.
0: You know, whatever the, the
1: top 10 most overused words, try to avoid any of those. And then that leads us into the summary, which is your professional elevator pitch. When I personally coach individuals, my suggestion is is pick out the person you most professionally admire. In my case, Warren Buffett. I would love the opportunity to meet the Oracle of Omaha. Opportunity can strike anyone at any time. The people that will capitalize on it are the ones that have rehearsed for it. And so whatever your elevator pitch is, 15 seconds of how you would introduce yourself to your professional idol, and I don't care who they are, rehearse it in a mirror and rehearse it over and over again until that no matter what, no matter who walks in that elevator, you know how to introduce yourself in 10 to 15 seconds because that ability to be succinct and deliver it powerfully will separate you from the other people. Now, remember, most of us get starstruck. Right, if Warren Buffett was actually here right now, mm-hmm. the only reason why I could even get anything intelligent out of my mouth is because I rehearsed it, right. expecting him one day to walk in and on uh, me. But other than that, I would sit there and I would probably stutter and fumble and lose the opportunity. Rehearsing
0: in life, I've always find and found and and maybe this is from coming from an acting background is really the most important thing. I don't do this show without rehearsing. I've had the opportunity to meet Bruce Springsteen, who was my war- my Warren Buffett to you. And I knew exactly what I was going to say to him the two times that I knew I was going to meet him and have a couple of minutes to speak. So yeah, rehearsal is <laughs> is everything.
1: It is everything and anything. It's for for job interviews. It's for client pitches, prospect pitches, importing meetings internally, or however, if you're struggling with trying to figure out how to separate yourself or identify yourself in whatever market you have to rehearse it. And I think the number one challenge people have is they struggle how to identify themselves to, or articulate their capabilities to others that they haven't met before.
0: So if someone says to you, well, Brian, I wanna be visible, what tips do you give them there?
1: What does visible mean to you and to who? You know, it, it really begs a series of questions. Right. When you're engaging someone, they think they have an idea of the concept and they articulate it one way, but if you probe and ask enough questions, it's not necessarily exactly what they're asking to accomplish.
0: Right. So if they're a podcast host, for example, and they want to be explored by fascinating people that they may want to talk to, they're probably going to make something you know really important and, and make it visible and interesting. And also build kind of a brand association with with really who you are and what your brand is. And I think LinkedIn has gone from someone looking, you know, uh, putting their brand as what they do for a living versus maybe their brand might even be a little bit deeper.
1: Or what they do for a living is not what they actually want to do for a living. Right. A lot of us that have gone through life and not necessarily have identified what we want to do what we, when we grow up, <laughs> it, right? I, I think there's a lot of us that have uh, settled right. on a career that's chosen us as opposed to us choosing it and finding that confidence to speak up for what we're actually passionate about.
0: There's a question I ask of a lot of guests and I wasn't sure if I was gonna ask it today, but what's your definition of happiness? Because I think it fits exactly where you, where you are right now.
1: Oh, happy. happiness is uh, having people you love around you. First and foremost, having your health, because you can't buy health, you can't buy more time, no matter how much money you have in the world. And then uh, feeling, you know, at least for me personally, is feeling that I'm adding value to others around me. You know, my, I'm not successful in my day thinking how much did I take from others, but how much did I give to others? And so if I've done, you know, I've got my, my family's healthy, I'm healthy. I'm able to contribute to those around me. I'm happy. Once you have enough for shelter and food, everything else is I think the, the additional materialism in this, especially in this society, causes unnecessary stress. We, we let our things control us instead of allowing wealth creation or building to, to facilitate more choices.
0: Well, that leads me to something I was going to bring up a little later in the show is sort of this fake sense of happiness that people have from social media in general. And I'm not including LinkedIn as much here. LinkedIn, I think, has done a very good job in general of staying away from being what Instagram and Facebook are and Twitter in many ways, although
1: the lines are blurring a little bit more. And so the one thing that I would challenge all of the members, if you want the community to stay purer, right, there's no such thing as pure, right. we have to self-police it. We have to make sure that, you know, as people are contributing content that we feel is questionable, either we're hiding or suppressing their posts first and foremost, right? Cause I don't want to see that content. Right. And hopefully their numbers go down. They realize that they're not sharing content that's valuable uh, or too disconnecting from people, right? I, I think that we have to weed the garden of our connection base sometimes to remain healthy, right? Uh, kind and, of a spring cleaning. Yes. Yeah, and, and do it often. Which actually
0: I'm quoting you because I heard you say that in a speech once. And I think that's so true. I try to do that once a year.
1: Yeah. And I think that it's really important to keep the organic health of the network there's always and, and I, hopefully there'll always be a healthy dialogue about what's professional and versus what's not. Right. I don't think my view is any more practical than your view. right? right? I think that they're both valid. Uh, just like happiness, what does it mean? If there's 660 million people on LinkedIn, there's 660 million definitions of the happy and they're all good right. at the end of the day. So I think to me, One of the best things that LinkedIn did was stay true to being professional and not trying to, you know, imitate Facebook or later Instagram. Um, And believe me, early on, it was a struggle because all anyone wanted to talk about was Facebook, Facebook, Facebook. I felt like one of the Bradys and it was Marsha, (laughs) Marsha, Marsha. But I think. Especially with uh, recent events over the last couple of years and other things that happened, it really proved that we had the right long term strategy.
0: and just recently, the New York Times had a story called "Why aren't We Talking about LinkedIn?" Um, as it has remained pretty much a controversy free zone. And, and as we talked about, it's it's really there to connect the world's professionals and try to make them more productive and successful. And if you haven't really taken a deep look at LinkedIn in a while, boy, things have changed. I mean, let's talk about some of the key areas that are going on in this building out in California, really all over the world. And uh, I mean, I had not been in the LinkedIn headquarters here in the Empire State Building in a couple of years, and uh, it's just like another different universe. I just showed up on Mars one day. It's just, just amazing. But why don't we start with um, brand development specifically? What has changed there that are bringing more and more brands to, to really want to work harder with LinkedIn?
1: Well, I think that the competition, if you think about the amount of money you have to invest in Facebook and Instagram and Snapchat to get the same amount of reach that you do on LinkedIn. I think that brands have come to the realization that there's a cleaner path, especially for B2B brands on LinkedIn to getting and reaching the audience that matter most to them. I think there's a de-emphasis on print, right? More and more people are moving digitally and you are able to measure and analyze via data in ways that you can in digital that you can't in print, obviously. So those are all driving forces to get people to pay more attention. And I think that as they pilot certain things on LinkedIn, they get really good results. Generally speaking, if the content's good, <laughs> well, I mean that's a key. We
0: grew up in an era, and it's very different. You know, two, channel two, four, five, seven, nine, eleven, and thirteen. But you know, I look at LinkedIn. That you got up to go and change for your parents? Yeah, exactly. If you wanted to watch Uncle Floyd, yeah, you had yeah. to go to the UHF. But a very few. If you're over fifty and you grew up in the New York metropolitan area, you'll understand that. If not, look it up. <laughs> but. LinkedIn Learning, for example, I think is one of the coolest channels. In fact, a uh, recent guest we had, Kim Kalp, who was on Shark Tank and runs a company called the Superfan Company. Uh, she recently was featured on LinkedIn Learning, doing, doing a really good course on, on getting noticed and, and, and what she's done. Um, what's the origin of LinkedIn Learning and, and where,
1: where can people get the best use of that? Also, LinkedIn acquired lynda.com, L-Y-N-D-A.com several years ago. And so that's the origin of LinkedIn Learning. So lynda.com is still Lynda content, but the LinkedIn Learning is the platform and the delivery mechanism for that content. Lynda has an amazing Hollywood quality studio. Uh, It's not like paid instructors. These are real live experts in their area of expertise that come in and are chosen or get lotteried essentially they're they're applying to become instructors no who wouldn't want that exposure it's tremendous and the uh, production facilities are top-notch so you're not only getting a video experience you're getting a hollywood-grade video experience to to learn and i think that especially for people today they don't necessarily have hours to dedicate so you can log in, get a few minutes on a snippet of maybe something you have a a meeting on tomorrow or you have an interview next week. You can get smart on certain things pretty quickly. And then there's much more deep uh, courses that can really help transform careers, right? And it's just a search, there's a search engine, you just go in and, you know, whatever you think you wanna learn more about to prepare for. Yeah, there's over 9,000 courses and LinkedIn uh, develops over 50 courses each week. And they're in tons of uh, you know there's uh, content in Spanish and there's German and there's Mandarin and it, it, you know the list goes on and on. And is it all from a professional standpoint? I mean, there, are, there's not knitting
0: classes, for example, or maybe uh, there, there could is. be. Yeah, okay, mean,
1: why isn't it professional? Right, yeah, that's I mean, true.
0: Some there's a professional knitting. There's knitted knitting. Purses, Yeah, right? Uh, that's right.
1: I don't know if there a is a. Is I don't a know, I don't know. Uh, might be a
0: professional knitting league. I'm, I'm unaware of
1: a lot of technical skills like Java development, things yeah. of that nature. But there's also a lot of soft skills. If you've not been a people manager before, what does it mean to be a successful people manager? Maybe you're in a fast growing startup and you just get promoted to become a manager you haven't managed before. I think the soft skills really bridges the gap, especially in today's, uh, in my opinion, that so many people spend so much time in screens, they almost lost the ability to learn how to communicate effectively.
0: Oh, that's so true. Well, yeah, LinkedIn learning has just been, just been a fascinating thing. There's also educational learning as well is that geared more for the educational world or is it geared more for people just to get educated on topics? Like are, are teachers able to get smarter on topics or students? If, anyone is, can, Anyone really is. It, yeah.
1: I mean, there's too much knowledge in the world for any one of us to know everything. And so depending on where we are in our point of time, there's always going to be something to learn.
0: What are they looking for when you're, when someone's applying to be on one of these platforms? What are, what are some of the things that, that matters the most, uh, to the committee that's making this decision?
1: Honestly, I don't know for sure. I'll be very candid. My presumption is that you've got a good stage presence, you know, right. you're going to be good in a video setting. You're an expert and you already have some sort of a brand, right? You already have a following to some degree and a story to tell and a story. to t- Exactly. And so I think those are going to be like table stakes for, you know, even getting considered by the committee. So we talked a little bit um, about some of the mistakes that, that
0: people make certainly with photos, but you know, and there's some of the obvious ones, but let's, Let's look at some more common mistakes that, that you've noticed over the years that people make on LinkedIn. I, I'm sure you have quite a list that you can share and, and maybe help somebody who's listening right now. We talked about the photo and the background photo, but what other typical things are, are just,
1: you look at it and you realize, oh, all I needed to do was X. Um, well, one, brevity is key. It's the internet. You're fighting for attention. If you can't get your point across in a very succinct way, people are gonna move on. People have short attention spans. Think about your own consumption habits. If an article doesn't grab your attention immediately, what do you do? You don't read it.
0: No, nope. same with a book, same with a Netflix or TV show, whatever.
1: Right, so in the past you had a newspaper and you had no other options. You may have been forced to read those second and third-rate articles because you still wanted to read something, but there's no other options. So you may have consumed all that content in that newspaper. I'm speaking as if I've done that before, definitely, (laughs) Uh, especially in an airport. Use the same critique criteria that you apply to others on yourself. I think that's important, right? Don't assume that the people you're trying to reach are going to behave any differently than you. Spelling errors, grammatical errors, common, right? Just as people did in a resume world, they're there. The next coming of Moby Dick is something you want to avoid in a LinkedIn profile. Brevity, again, is key. Everything through. And tell a story. I think you alluded to that for The best LinkedIn profiles, tell a story.
0: And how about telling the truth? There's a lot of lying on there, just like there's, well, there's lying, in lying every, everywhere. everywhere in the world. <laughs> but, no, no,
1: of course. But um,
0: that I think, you know is something that is an internet-related issue where people just sort of aren't telling the truth. And, and, and I guess I'm thinking more about someone that's applying for a job and said they graduated from Harvard Business School. I mean, you can look these things up.
1: <laughs> okay. So there's a difference between positioning something in its best light,
0: right.
1: which is still truthful, right. but maybe we're embellishing or positioning. That's okay. Right? We're all trying to get to the next stage. Out and outlying, I would say is uh, not appropriate at all. And you're giving someone a really good reason to not do business with you, not connect with you, not hire you. I mean, if all else is being equal and you have someone, uh, two candidates, and they're both stellar, and you discover one person has a lie in whatever piece of material they shared with you, it's a real easy decision at that point, because mm-hmm. if they're lying about that, what else are they lying exactly. about?
0: Exactly. So our friend Gary Vaynerchuk, probably one of the biggest users and vocal supporters of LinkedIn today, today, today. <laughs> we'll just we'll just leave it at that. <laughs> um, actually, and Gary would be the first to say that you know he might not have been as active on it uh, in years past, but he put out a list earlier this year of some effective marketing strategies, and I just love your take on on some things in this list. So one thing he talks about is posting ninety times a day in some of the top performing posts and adding your two cents into the comments as a way of engaging on the right side of the linkedin page you can see the most active stories or the active you know commentaries going
1: which are picked by real live people around right. the world that's, live not LinkedIn editors, that, that's not an algorithm that's not an algorithm those are real people i didn't know that and that if you go back a few years facebook went algorithm we went people and you see how that played out yeah that's a big difference. That's, that is, yeah. and we continue that to expli- hire. That
0: explains the quality of what I see there. I really see great. I mean, I, I love looking at everything's every trending. Day. I mean, right.
1: with your morning cup of coffee and being in financial services, I'm sure you tune into CNBC or the Wall Street Journal or Bloomberg every day. That's going to be one of your top places to get an idea of what's happening today, right.
0: instantly. He talks about writing native articles on LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. What do you
1: think about that? Not everyone's a writer. And not everyone has Gary's staff. And so if you're very passionate about something, I say write about it, definitely. If you want to be known as a writer, well, then you better come up with an editorial calendar and have some commitment and discipline to put out content fairly frequently, once a month, once a quarter, whatever it is, have a cadence and line up around that. Honestly, I've only published maybe three or four long-form articles on LinkedIn, and that was usually after I got a B in my bonnet, mm-hmm. and I was feeling really passionate about something. But
0: and you researched it, and you fact-checked it, and you you know you you did it the old-fashioned way. But that's how it gets noticed. This is a no-brainer. I mean, I've done this from day one. Add your profile link to your email signature. I mean, it, it, you know, it's part of doing business. Using LinkedIn to host special events, especially in the B two B space, kind of organically for whatever your needs are. There's a new event section now,
1: where you can list it. Oh, that's great. So that's something that I would investigate. Publicizing it, tagging other people that you think would be important. If it's an event around a specialty that there's a hashtag, I think a lot of people don't know or effectively utilize hashtags on LinkedIn. I don't even know if so many people do it effectively on Insta or Twitter as well. But on LinkedIn in particular, in your area of expertise or what you do for a living, you should be following at least the top five hashtags to see what's trending, not only at an organizational or global level, but in your specific area of interest. And I think that the people that you can discover there and the content you can discover there, which is typically you'd miss, Mm -hmm. can really give you a competitive advantage, especially if you're in a business development or marketing role or product research role. I think that there's a lot of nuggets in there that people are sharing that your average user may get 50, couple hundred views based on their network. But if they hashtagged it, you know, they're looking for other people like them that share that passion. That would really be able to key into it. So a question that I've been asked a lot, Brian, is when you
0: want to connect with somebody for whatever reason, not necessarily you want to ask them for a job, but maybe you want to invite them on your podcast or you want to have a conversation about the industry. Is it best to send that message rather than just connecting blindly?
1: Well, first of all, you should never connect blindly. Okay. And I know that there are a couple of areas of LinkedIn where if you click connect, it'll just send it without giving right. you an opportunity to write a note. Right. That
0: has happened.
1: If the person, you know, it, make sure you go to the person's profile, click on send an invitation to connect, and add a note. Adding a personal note will triple your success rate, explain why you want to connect to the person, etc. Now, there's other mechanisms. If people have a LinkedIn premium license and they have their profile open, right. even if you're not connected to them, you can message them right. for free. Right. And uh, if you share a group with someone, they typically will allow you to message them directly as well. Mm-hmm. You know, So there are mechanisms to be able to communicate with like-minded professionals that you don't necessarily have to have a premium license for.
0: Now, this may be a secret sauce question, and you may not know it, or you may know it and not want to share it, but I'm just kind of curious. What percentage of people that send messages actually get a response?
1: Depends on the messaging platform. Um, well,
0: assuming they just, you know, they just send
1: a message no, 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 I, straight um, straight away. Uh, there, because there's different mechanisms okay. within the platform. That's why I was clarifying. Okay. Uh, but generally speaking, in-mails, which are the, the paid right. version... Right. Those receive, depending on industry things of that nature, from 20 to a 60% response rate. That's insane compared to other digital formats where you get less than 1% in a digital media advertising campaign. If you get a 1% engagement rate or 2%, you're kind of crushing it.
0: That's true. And it's, and I think it's, that's really great perspective because there's times where I won't hear from somebody and, you know, immediately like, why? Like, what, what did I offend you? I mean, you know, you're not the the queen of England, although she's probably on there now, but 20 to 60% is a really good number. When you think
1: about it, thinking back to what it was with sending out mailers, (laughs) And there's still a trade-off, right? I mean, you have to look at the person's profile, see if it's a good fit, and if you're trying to, you know, for me, I always find it amusing. I when I, I get solicited, right, and it'll be someone who connects to me and, and wants to sell me some sort of service on how to sell via LinkedIn. <laughs>
0: obviously they haven't read my profile your profile or googled you
1: yeah and so i think that's like why right. would you waste your effort right and i'm not saying what they're selling right. isn't valuable right or isn't worth and i've selling. had that
0: i've had that happen a lot since i've done the podcast i mean just ridiculous things that it's just so obvious that if they spent five seconds just reading my summary or
1: reading a little bit about it they would know Yeah, uh, Mitch. Can I? uh, You know, uh, I'm a financial advisor. Would you like to move your assets to me?
0: Yeah, and I've had that happen. (laughs) I've
1: specifically, I specifically (laughs) had
0: that happen. And and actually, the majority of the people that do want to connect with me are other financial advisors. I don't really see the value in me connecting with them. Not sure what they see the value in there from from their perspective. Before we go, a couple things: social selling. How do you define it? To begin with, it's 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 kind of the buzzword right out there, and 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 do you believe it's effective? I mean, ninety percent of sales reps—this is a little research that I did—with more than five thousand LinkedIn connection it's meet or surpass quotas, and companies with formalized processes are seventy percent more likely to hit their revenue goals. So, what is so, you know social selling all about? And then why don't you just bring us into LinkedIn
1: Sales Navigator from there? So, for me, social selling. It, let's remove the buzzword. Okay. It's about digital transformation and taking advantage of the digital assets that are available to you, right? What does digital do for you? It removes repetitive, redundant tasks to allow you to free up your bandwidth to focus on value-add or differentiated services, right? So that's what good automation is, when it removes repetitive, redundant tasks. Right. So if you're social selling... It's not about social selling. It's really about taking advantage of the digital platforms that you have available via LinkedIn or Twitter or Mm -hmm. Facebook, whatever, depending on what you're selling. What can that digital platform do for you to eliminate redundant tasks, deliver you new information faster and more efficiently than you had access to before so that you could focus on better conversations with your clients, right? If you use things like Sales Navigator and you use it with discipline – It's forcing you to do the research on the people, clients, prospects, et cetera, that you should should have been doing all along.
0: So what is your elevator pitch on Sales Navigator?
1: Uh, For every dollar you give me that you spend on Sales Navigator, I'll probably give you $10 back in revenue.
0: That's a great elevator ride.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's really what it boils down to. It's that simple. The amount of time the average salesperson, I don't care what industry you're in, that you should be spending investigating your prospects, researching the companies that you're doing business with. How many people have gone and met with a client? Tell me what you do. As a, as a sales professional, I should never ask one of my clients what their company does, right? I should, if they're public, I should have read their financials, their case, their Qs, the 13 Fs, whatever. Like, all that information is out there. Why have I not done my research? to understand where my service or solution fits into the scope of what's gonna benefit that. Right? Because at the end of the day, as a vendor, there's two things we do, maybe three. One, I help you make money, or I help you save money. I'm either tying into one of those two things, that's what makes business go around. The third one is help you mitigate risk. But that really ties into helping you make money or save money. So that's what a great partnership is about. And I need to be able to understand what your business is and how the digital assets I have here at LinkedIn can help you make money faster and more efficiently than you did it yesterday and at a better overall cost structure. It's that simple. It's that simple. And so I don't know why people overcomplicate things. Uh, you know, ROI is not that hard of a concept. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone wants that simple pitch. Everyone wants to make that simple investment. Right. And they forget the
0: other past guest and someone uh, I know well, Ted Rubin talks about ROR, the return on relationships, and that's just as important. And I think Sales Navigator gives you not only the ROI, but it gives you that ROR because you really understand those relationships. They deepen.
1: I'll ask you in, in the financial advisory world, if I just picked any random financial advisor out of a hat, how many clients do they have? I would say, again, it could be, you know, I'm going I'm to say 150. 150. Okay. So there's 40 hours in a week, generally speaking. That leaves us how much time per client if we're being proactive. Okay. Get the point. Right? Yeah. And so how can I use my 40 hours to be more effective for my 150 clients where I'm actually proactive with them? And so... In a sales navigator environment, I have, let's say, 140 of the 150 have LinkedIn profiles. We'll assume that, you know, an average financial advisor has some older, more retired folks that, you know, miss that boat. Right. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Doesn't matter. All good. And so I've got 140 people tracked. And now the automation is proactively managing the relationship for me. That's my time saver. Right. And so... The other thing is, is once I have those people identified, again, the automation will tell me, oh, well, you've got Shaquille O'Neal as a client, right? And so I see Shaquille (laughs) O'Neal. And so there, it'll recommend LeBron James and some other players or people that match Shaquille O'Neal's profile. And maybe you should contact them. And so, again, it's doing the work because every person I've ever worked with in sales, like financial advisors, like... Hey, I'm doing a good job for you, right? Yes. Who else should I be talking to, right? Right. That's the ultimate question. That is the ultimate question. Because if you actually believe I'm doing a good service for you, you want to share that experience with others. And so Sales Navigator very quickly gives people in in a sales career or business development or account management, not necessarily hunter roles, but farming, it's automating all of the stuff that CRM fails at. Because customer relationship management like salesforce.com and whatnot it never updates the changes in the environment and on average 25 to 30 percent of people will change roles either job or companies in any given year and so every CRM is woefully out of date and so if I as an individual contributor can automate the thing that I hate most which is data entry and it's bubbling up that stuff to me proactively And it's suggesting other people like the people that are already doing business with me. It's already taken care of two of maybe the top five things that I hate most as a sales rep.
0: Exactly. So a little birdie and a past guest uh, LinkedIn superstar, Dan Swift, um, who now runs Empire Selling, which is bringing the human back into selling, told me that you always like to say that members have to understand the platform first before they see the maximum return. Explain that a little bit.
1: So... Very often when I do speaking engagements at uh, maybe it's people that are out of work and job transition, it's students at a university or a college, high school students, it could be, or it could be a networking event. I always get asked, I need to buy a premium license. And I will ask people, why do you think you need to, to buy a premium license? Because there, I think there's a, a fallacy, especially in the U.S., that There's a presumption that if you pay for something, it's going to give you a shortcut. And the fact of the matter is, on LinkedIn, if you're not maximizing the basic platform, maximizing the profile tips, understanding the groups, where the hashtags are and the connectivity and and the relationship of the search engine and all that, if you don't understand those concepts, paying for a premium license is not going to accelerate any outcomes for you you're stepping over dollars to get to pennies. And I don't want to see anyone waste their valuable hard-earned money. It doesn't matter if it's a nickel or gazillion dollars. I want to make sure the people that I touch here at LinkedIn, all the members are actually going to be better for communicating with me and interacting with LinkedIn, not feeling cheated. And so if they're not willing to put in the work, it's like, I feel like one of those uh, cheesy gym memberships. I sold you the gym membership, and I'm actually happy you don't come and use it. And really, the exceptional LinkedIn users have the discipline to participate in either micro moments each day or dedicate some amount of time on a repetitive basis that keeps them consistently engaged, but allows them to develop their brand, develop their following, and actually receive results. And I didn't tell them to take a pill and they're going to change, transform their physique. No, the person who transformed their physique watched their calories. And did a whole host of other things, a gazillion, you know, like hundreds of great or hard decisions every day to transform themselves. Right. And the same thing happens with great professionals or any expert. Right? right? They put in the time. It's all the blood, sweat, and tears it's you don't see. It's the ten thousand
0: hours, and it's everything else. And and it reminds me of a quote that Claude Silver, who was another guest recently, um, who's the chief heart officer for for Gary Vaynerchuk's company, VaynerMedia. Love that tagline. That's it's uh, a great line. She says the smartest person in the room is the room. And I think at the end of the day, that's kind of exactly what you're saying. You better know the room first. Last thing, influencers all over the place. Everybody thinks they're an influencer. I mean, Yet LinkedIn does a really good job in actually identifying influencers. So maybe just Again, highlight- get it's a vetted
1: process. Yeah,
0: understand the process and maybe there one or two names you want to just drop of people that, that, I know everyone's a specialist in different areas, but if there's someone that you know you think, you know, you should
1: check out. For me, Sir Richard Bronson, I think he, he crushes it. And, and, and I think genera- generationally speaking, he's a boomer. He's not Gen Z, he's not Gen X, he's- uh, he crushes it. Sally Krawcheck. Right? I, then another person who just, especially in financial services. I've
0: known Sally for years and she's, yeah. She crushes it. She crushes it.
1: And, uh, you know, so those are two people that just jump out. But I think LinkedIn's done a good job of having a global inclusion, you know, of different people from around the world and influencers from the, each of the regions, uh, which is important, right? It's a global workforce. Right. And you know the the LinkedIn membership is fastest growing in Asia not surprising right mm-hmm. the majority of the world's population all the fastest growing markets for LinkedIn are outside the US sure and so having a, a representative community that's participating from a leadership perspective via influencers is important and having that consistency and i think it sets a tone for the top if you work for an organization or lead an organization and you're an influencer and you're not contributing, you're not giving your blessing to say you should be contributing as well. And I, I, that's it. Everyone looks for the tone for the top. And how do you look to your leaders for the okay, the nod Ooh. to say, yes, this is okay. And so I think no one at Virgin is ever going to say, oh, I don't, I can't post on social media. I can't talk about the great things we're doing leaders doing it all exactly time, right so it's the it's it the best to the say top. let's be great brand ambassadors because if we're doing great brand, uh, work for ourselves and our clients we can also do great work for the communities we care about right and, i mean that's totally intertwined and in that's everything what it's all does. about
0: it's about community so brian we've covered a lot of ground on linkedin i want to thank you brian Teige, uh for being our tour guide today and educating my audience more about the linkedin of today Anything really cool on the horizon for 2020 that we can look forward to that you can share?
1: I, I think LinkedIn Live is going to be coming to more people. Mm-hmm i think that's really i'm waiting for it i I, a lot of a lot of us are is it it
0: chosen is it you know the chosen ones get picked or how does that work
1: uh probably roulette wheel of some sort on a grand scale yeah (laughs) Uh, because there's some they missed on but anyway (laughs) but i think that uh you know you're going to look at continued editorial expansion that you've seen in the news Uh, the algorithms are going to get smarter and tighter and LinkedIn on the commercial side, we're going to continue to vertically integrate. I mean, you know, we're going from planning, you know, with our new talent insights platform where we can help organizations, workforce planning and and talent resource management, hiring, which has been our core business. Right. Uh, yeah, you still do that. Oh, that's our biggest <laughs> business. And then uh, learning. Right. right. So educating people and then engaging. Right. So we acquired Glint a couple of years ago, and that's an employee survey platform. And uh the amount of ai and if you think about how we're bringing that all together it really is going to change the dynamics for how organizations can manage their human capital and it's going to be a differentiator for those that know how to really manage and effectively engage their human capital you're going to see the difference in their price to value uh succeed and and surpass their competitors You're
0: you're going to watch it okay well thanks so much and remember folks you have to follow Brian Teige on LinkedIn. That's T-I-E-T-J-E for fantastic content every day. Thank you so much for listening and following this show on Spotify and soon Apple Podcasts. Thank all the folks over at Resonate Recording for all of the wonderful editing work that they've done. My videographer today, Harrison Slater, my son joining us today here at LinkedIn. And remember, when saving for your future, always pay yourself first. Have a great week.